This program is sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ. There's a message true and glad for the sinful and the sad. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. It will give them courage new. It will help them to be true. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring out. All right. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Redeeming the Time. I'm your host, Chris Macy. And I'm the minister here with the North Valley Church of Christ. Well, today we're going to be looking at another section of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And I want to start with this story. It was, uh, it was a 4th of July weekend, and there was his family. They had gathered for a big meal together, and in the kitchen was little Johnny, four-year-old Johnny. And there on the edge of the cabinet sat this you know, the one thing Johnny loved the most, the, the big, juicy watermelon and round, and he could not stop staring at it. But everyone told little Johnny, leave it alone. Mom and Dad would cut it up later. It was explained to him that it would be too hard for him to lift it, and if he tried, it would drop or it might split open on the floor. And sure that he understood the danger, everyone went on about their business, that is until there was a loud thump, and there it was. The watermelon on the floor, cracked right down the middle, splattered, juice going everywhere. Everyone turned, saw what had happened, and you could sense the various feelings among the adults. Disappointment, frustration, surprise, anger. But before anyone could say or do anything, little Johnny looked up and simply said, Well, I never saw that happening. <laughs> Now, why did that little boy do that? Well, he, he did that because he wanted the watermelon. He wanted that, uh, and he wanted it now. He couldn't understand why the the object of his affection the, uh, would be denied him. and That watermelon represented pleasure, all the pleasure in life for him. And when he attempted to take hold of it, everything fell apart. And that's what Solomon is telling us here in Ecclesiastes. He's telling us that he sought to take hold of pleasure in his life. But when he did, everything fell apart. Ecclesiastes 2, starting in verse 1, here's what he writes. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my mind with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. 
I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. And then, so, or, or so Solomon goes through a, a whole litany here, if we, as we see, of things that he had done to find pleasure. Pleasure in accomplishments, houses, vineyards, fruit trees. Uh, accomplishments brought him, uh, or he found that none of those accomplishments brought him pleasure. He looked for it in his possessions, in his slaves, and his flocks, gold and silver, but nothing worked. He even tried women and men. And that didn't work. And at the end of, the, of experimenting with all those pursuits of seeking pleasure, it's almost as if Solomon sighed and said, Ugh, meaningless, it's vanity, chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained. Now, it helps to know that these were not just errant musings by Solomon. He actually has a purpose in telling us about the failure of pleasure to please. But before, I, before we get into that exactly, I want... You know, I don't want us to dive into this yet but without understanding this first. Even though it, it sounds like, you read that passage, it sounds like, boy, don't seek after things in this world. Don't seek after the pleasures of this world. That, that's not true. Solomon is not saying that. God designed us to have pleasure in this world. When he created Adam and Eve, he prepared a special place for them to live. And that place was called the Garden of Eden. You know what Eden means? Have you ever looked up the Hebrew word? It's the Hebrew word for pleasure. It's the garden of pleasure. And that's where God put them. When you read through the Psalms, you you read all kinds of things like this. Psalm 36, verses 7 and 8. Here's what David wrote. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. He wants, God wants to satisfy us, and he wants to let us drink all we want from his river. (coughs) Excuse me. So there's nothing wrong with wanting pleasure in our lives. Again, Psalm 16, verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. God wants to give us pleasures. Now, what exactly is that? Well, you can look up definitions. And I found, uh, I looked in several resources, and here are some single word definitions I've found for pleasure. Satisfaction, enjoyment, delight, happiness, joy, and contentment you realize that one of God's objectives when he saved you and me was to give us pleasure, to give us enjoyment, satisfaction, and contentment in this world. The problem for many is that we look in all the wrong places for that pleasure. You know, we live in the world. If you're a Christian, yeah, we live in a world. And so there are times when we may think uh, like those in the world think, because we're surrounded by them. We're surrounded by all the, the pagans and the, of, of the world, those who have not accepted Christ. And they tend, and the longer you're around those people, we tend to take on their thoughts. It happens. It's going to happen. And so that's why we got to stay in the Bible. And that's what Solomon is doing. He's getting right to the heart of things. Um, and 
and also uh, not just Solomon, but Paul gets right to the heart of things. He gives us the secret of joy and the secret of contentment. And here it is, the secret of pleasure. He gives us the key to satisfaction and happiness in this world. It's found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where Paul says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So Paul has discovered the secret to being content. And at the very beginning of all this, in Philippians 4.4, 4, he said this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Well, that's it. That's the secret of being content in any and every situation. Rejoice in the Lord, obviously, right? Can it possibly be that simple? And now, <clears throat> notice Paul repeats himself. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, you would think you, you, when you have something positive like that and easy, you just have to say it once. So what's, what's the secret? Rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, okay. But he doesn't, he doesn't end it with that. He repeats it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Sometimes we, we, we read that and we think, well, maybe Paul is saying that twice because he's so excited. Could be. Or maybe he's trying to emphasize something to us so we don't miss it. We, we tend to do this, but more on the negative side of things, like with our children, right? We repeat ourselves to our kids. And not, not when we uh, tell them something positive. Usually it's when it's a negative. Hey, stop running in the house. Stop running. Hey, hey, look at me. Eyes on me, right? Look at me. Stop running in the house. Now repeat it. <laughs> you have them repeat it back to you. Make sure they're listening because it's important. Stop it, right? We emphasize things when we want to repeat them. And I think that's what Paul's doing. He, he's emphasizing this. He wants to make sure we, see, we hear this and understand it because it's just too simple. You couldn't possibly gain happiness just by rejoicing, could you? And because it seems so easy, seems so simple, a lot of folks overlook it. <clears throat> In the Reader's Digest of May 2004, I read an article by an atheist who made an interesting observation. Here's what she said or wrote. Over the years, I have come to think I'm missing out. My friends and relatives who rely on God, the real believers, not just the churchgoers, have an expansiveness of spirit. When they walk along a stream, they don't just see a water or just see water falling over rocks. The sight fills them with ecstasy. They see a realm of hope beyond this world. I just see a babbling brook. I don't get the message. End quote. What that atheist was seeing in those real believers was a spirit of rejoicing. The real believers had seen something she did not. And that, well, that is one of the real problems, I think, for folks that aren't content. They don't see what we see. Unhappy people are often unhappy because they're never satisfied with what they have. They could have the whole world at their fingertips, and they'd still not be content. And that's because they've never learned to rejoice in what they have. 
Biblically, rejoicing is not so much an emotion, it's a conscious decision to be happy with what you have. (coughs) Excuse me. Those who don't consciously decide to rejoice will never be happy, no matter what they have. I've always said that if I give a person a notebook or a tablet of paper and ask them, I want you to write down the things that disappoint you in life, that frustrates you about life, or, or write down the things you wish you had but you don't have. They could fill out that entire tablet, that, that whole notebook, and ask for another. Couldn't you? I could. I could. If, I'm, if you're going to be honest with yourself, I could. Now, if I give that same person a single piece of paper and ask them to write down the things they were thankful for, they would struggle to even write down a few things, maybe 10, 12, 20, if you, 25 maybe. It's hard, right? You know, <clears throat> I have four kids, and when I was teaching them to pray, at the beginning, of, for, for each of them, it, it's always the same. They, they know how to be thankful. <clears throat> and they'll, they'll start their prayer thanking the Lord for their house, for their family, for mom, for dad, for Jody, for Julie, for Joshua, and then for, for the, the kitchen, for their food, for the plate, the fork, the knife, Jody's fork, Joshua's fork. And they're, they're hitting on everything. And you have to stop them because they, will, they won't stop, right? Everything. Why do people struggle to write down just a few things of what they're thankful for? Because they're not used to being thankful for what they already have. Why should they be thankful for their hands? They've always had two hands. Why should they be thankful for being able to see? Maybe they've always been able to see. Why, why should they be thankful for being able to walk? or talk, or sing. They've always had those things. But they can't reach those other things. Those things of life that disappoint and frustrate them because they don't have them. And that's what makes them unhappy. They focus on what they don't have rather than what they do have. That's part of the reason that Solomon was so frustrated by his accomplishments in possessions, in entertainment, in life. He has all those things. In fact, those items are easy for a man in his position to, in power uh, to possess. <coughs> Excuse me. So nothing that he mentioned was capable of giving him pleasure because he has not learned to be satisfied and happy with what he had. Now, there's one more aspect to this frustration on Solomon's part with pleasure. There's one more thing he wants us to see that is missing in people's lives. Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content. And in any and every situation, whatever it might be, whether he was hungry or, or fed or, or having all that he needed or, or if he was in want, it was to rejoice in the Lord. In all of Solomon's discussion about seeking pleasure Do you notice one thing that was missing there in chapter 2? He never once mentioned God. And I believe he did that on purpose. At the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he said this in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. The conclusion, 
when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. The conclusion of the matter, says Solomon, the reason everything else seems so empty and worthless and boring in life is because you have not included God in the picture. If God is not at the center of your joy, life is going to be empty. One of the scholars that uh, writes the Jewish Encyclopedia said that no language has as many words for joy and rejoicing as does the Hebrew. In the Old Testament, there are 27 different words used primarily for some aspect of joy or joyful participation in religious worship. In contrast to the rituals of other faiths of the, of the East, he says, Israelite worship was essentially a joyous proclamation and celebration. The good Israelite, he goes on saying, regarded the act of thanking God as the supreme joy of his life. Pure joy is joy in God, in both its source and object. Interesting. Remember what we read in Psalm 1611? You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So where's joy? It's in his presence. Where's the eternal pleasures? At his right hand. And don't forget, Paul wrote that he had found the secret to contentment. And I already told you what that was. Rejoice in the Lord always. But that phrase is actually the opening statement for Paul in discussion of how a Christian should rejoice. When he ends that section with these words of what truly the secret of his contentment is, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me. That's verse 13 there at the end. It is Jesus who gives him contentment, the Lord Christ. It is Jesus who gives him his joy and his pleasure in life. That's because without the Christ, there is no lasting contentment. But Paul realized he could do everything through Christ who gave him strength. He was able to find contentment. It didn't matter. Because Christ gave him all he needed, and he recognized that all the blessings he had in his life was from the Lord. If those things were taken away, that's okay. Because he still had all he needed. Jesus. God gave him the one thing he needed the most. Everything else was a perk. And Job saw and realized this. Yeah, life was rough on him. But remember when he had lost everything in that one day as his servants were coming to tell him as the things he lost, even his own children. He tore his clothes. He was in mourning. But he said what? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the Lord. How could he do that? He knew contentment, that joy, real joy was found in the Lord. Solomon went through a whole litany of things that should give life purpose, right? But they don't. In the end, he repeats again and again, all emptiness, all worth, all vanity, nothing new under the sun. Our only hope must be above it, beyond. 
Our true hope for meaning in this world lies above this world and not in this world. It will always disappoint. It will always disappoint. You know, <coughs> I'm not a counselor, but I've done a class for marriages. And I, I like how uh, I, I follow this book, Marriage on the Rock. I like to start the class with a, a, an illustration he has later on where people have to, I give them Play-Doh. All the couples get Play-Doh on each person, the, the man and the, and the woman, the husband, the wife. And so all right, I want you to make yourself the best you can. Or if we want to have, have fun with it, you know, you make your spouse with the Play-Doh. And then you give it to them. And then they give you yours. And so you have these two little figurines. I was like, okay, now there's your, that's you too. And you get married, right? And you can become a, a, a new person, right? So you, you come together as one. I want you to take those two and put them together and make one. And so they'll lay one down. They'll lay the other one on top of it. They try to align the arms, align the legs. And they, they press them together right real hard. And they do that. And if you've ever played with Play-Doh, you know that even though you press them together and they're stuck, you can pull them apart quite easily. And it, it doesn't look right. It's kind of wonky looking. It's not going to, it just doesn't look right. Not that it looked good the first place, but now it really doesn't look good because they are doing it wrong. You put them together and then you got to smash them together, right? And work it into a whole new ball where it's no longer a person and then you reform it to a new man, new new person, woman, man, because they're one. It's a whole new being. And that's what God did for us. He tells, he tells us that through Paul in the book of Ephesians, where he takes the, the uh, Jews and he takes the Greeks and he forms the one new man. It is no longer us. We die and we're added into Christ. And now we're part of the one new man, a new life, a new perspective on life. We, we should be recognizing where all things come from and what's coming later on down the line. And if we can see things from Christ's perspective, this world, we can find the same kind of contentment as Paul. <coughs> when we were in the inner prison, as Paul and Silas were, with a threat to our lives, our very lives, we can sing hymns of praise to God. We can find joy and we rejoice. Even in the midst of great inflation, war, possible world war, things don't look good. Things haven't been looking good for years, right? Yet life continues to go on. God is still in control. Even in the difficulties of life, we have to be thankful. Because it could be in those difficulties of life, God is helping you. Keeping you from sin. Oh, Lord, life is so difficult. I, I have no time for anything. I have no time to, to do all these things. Well, and maybe in that time, you were going to do something you shouldn't have. Or maybe you had prayed to the Lord that he might help keep you from sin. Well, so the Lord's keeping you busy to keep you from sin. Right? It could be. You don't know. Thank the Lord. Thank you, Father, for all these things. My hands, my feet, my eyes. All the, the hardships that's in my life. Thank you, Lord, for those. It is molding me and helping me to see life better. And I look ahead to the things you have promised me in your son. Be with me as I go through this life. Be with my family. Help me to be a good example to them. To be content 
and joyous in any situation. Because however I am, my children are going to learn to be that way too. So I want to be a good example of them. Let them find Christ in me. I want them to. I want to wrap up my lesson oh, this, uh, this afternoon with that. And this uh, last minute or two, I would like to remind folks out there about the summer. It's coming. It's warming up outside, isn't it? Although it was nice and cool this morning uh, uh, here up at North Valley. But it's going to warm up. It's going to keep warming up. And we're going to be wondering, what are we going to do with our kids? Why well, we really want to get them out uh, and look at all these camps that are out there. Some camps are $1,000 to send one kid for one week. Oh, man, it's so expensive. What do I do? Well, Copper Basin Bible Camp, 10 minutes outside of Prescott, Arizona. Beautiful. One, over a mile up, so it's cooler in the summer. Wouldn't it be nice if you could send your kid to a Bible camp where they have fun, great memories, not that far away, and it only costs you $195 for anyone who's in fourth grade all the way up to high school. And you'll be able to send them up to that camp. You know they're in good hands, and they'll learn about God and the Bible and have fun and be so wore out when they get back, they will sleep for a week. Wouldn't that be great? And not only that, maybe you got some younger kids that are somewhere around five to um, five years old. Well, what the, you know, five or older. Let's say kindergarten. Let's say uh, they're potty trained and they can bathe themselves. All the way before fourth grade, we have what's called Cup Camp. Cup Camp doesn't last for a whole week. It's about two days. Th- it's three days. It starts on a half day, a full day, and then another half day. You pick them up on a Friday afternoon. And that's only $95 per kid. There is a difference on that one. You've got to have a parent or a guardian up there at the camp, too, while they're there. But isn't that, isn't that cheap? And they get to learn about God, and they get to out uh, of the house. They can't have cell phones, no digital video games. And they get to be around Christians and good counselors and directors and learn about God. Go, go to the website, copperbasinbiblecamp.org. Learn more about that. My time is up. I hope you think about it. Love you. Take care. And may God bless you in your works. Sending up to sweep away till Shaddam the better day. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Till the sinful world be one for Jehovah's mighty son. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. This program was sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ. To hear this program again and others, go to FamilyValuesRadio1010.com and click on the podcast page and find this program and many others right there on FamilyValuesRadio1010.com.